right, good morning, Longview Point. It is good to finally be here as your pastor on Sunday number one, the morning that you and I and my family have been praying for and toward for quite some time. It's good to be here, and I want to take just a moment before we begin our teaching and preaching time here to say thank you for your overwhelming kindness toward us in making the transition. Um, I said in the earlier service, if I have missed a message or a phone call or an email or a Facebook message or a direct message on Twitter or some other social media format, it is only because I have been overwhelmed with your uh, welcomes and messages, messages and it's, it's certainly not uh, intentional negligence on my part. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been very kind to me and to my wife and to my kids and you've made this feel much more like coming home than transitioning away from home and I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, may the Lord bless our ministry here. I want us to look this morning um, at Acts chapter 2. If you would take your Bibles and go ahead and turn there. Just a few more introductory remarks here. I, I am best as a pastor, preacher, and, and I think the people of God are best served when preaching systematically, expositionally through books of the Bible. So the game plan for the next few weeks is this. I have a couple of sort of introductory messages that I, I want to bring you this morning and next Sunday morning and then on the third Sunday of our being here, I'll actually be out. How's that for the new preacher? Show up for two Sundays and then miss one. Um, but my oldest son, Trey, is 14, and he'll be going on his first international mission trip. So dad's going along. And so something that was already planned. And then when I come back, we'll begin a series in the Gospel of Mark on true discipleship. So I'm excited about that. But for, for this morning and next Sunday morning, I, I want to talk to you about a couple of, of dangers, I think, that exist out there for us. Um, this morning, a, a danger that exists from within the church, and then next Sunday morning, a danger from outside the church. Both of these, I think, are very real and present dangers for us. What, what I have in mind for this morning with regards to the danger that exists from within the church is the idea of, of the church, bit by bit, becoming sort of institutionalized. It's very easy for us to sort of get sucked into sacred cows and traditions and the way we've always done it and, and to lose focus. Have you been there? Um, I'm coming to you as a pastor uh, having served for almost 15 years in established churches. Coming to you at the point as a church with just a 16-year history. This morning, Frank mentioned a historic a day and that you're calling your first ever pastor. Wade came here as the planner, but I'm the first pastor that you've called in the history of the church. And if I'm just being judgment day honest with you, one of the things that appealed to me the most early on about the idea of coming to be the pastor at Longview Point is the fact that I'm coming from 15 years of ministry experience in established church ministry to a church with but 16 years of history. It happens in time that the church kind of becomes institutionalized. It begins to serve itself and loses focus on the mission to which God has called us. Y'all tracking with me? Wednesday night, I was able to sit in on a Bible study. Preachers don't get to go here preaching very often, so I was excited too. And the, and the preacher preached on Paul's perseverance through all of the persecutions and the hardships that he faced. And, and Paul suffered, didn't he? 
Paul was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, you name it, Paul experienced it. But there's something to me more impressive about Paul's perseverance than even, even having faced the physical persecution-type hardships that he faced. There, there seems when, when difficulties come, there's a portion of the Spirit that shows up there, and God blesses and pours out grace. It's really remarkable. That, that tends to be a good experience for the church. What gets us more often than the threat of physical violence is the slow, incremental process of losing focus, becoming inwardly focused, becoming self-serving in our ministries and our missions. That's the kind of thing that gets us. Paul presses through that 30 years after the establishment of the church, after their structure, their offices, their many churches, they're networking together, they're, they're pooling their funds. There's the first century cooperative program, if you will, as Paul's collecting missions from ministry in Judea among the famished saints who were there. And yet Paul is still single-minded in his focus to get the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm far more impressed with that in Paul than I am the fact that he had stones thrown at him and he persevered in faith. This is a real danger. And so the way we guard ourselves against sort of getting into a rut becoming a sort of hapless, ineffective congregation is that we constantly remind ourselves of who we are, of whose we are, of what God has put us here to do it, to, to do. And we resolve among ourselves that this will be our mission. This will be our focus. We are not our own. We belong to Christ and to Christ alone with a charge, with a commission about which there is absolute clarity. Go and make disciples of all nations. So here we go this morning, reminding ourselves of, of who we are and whose we are and what God has put us here to do. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 36. If you found your way there, let's stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 36, the Bible says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
Now, sort of the standard approach to this passage, if you've been in church for five, ten years, Sunday school, connect groups, you, you've seen an approach to this passage that addresses the various functions of the church. And those lists can differ somewhat, but they're basically five functions of the church that are operating in the verses that, that we just read. We, we, we read beginning in sort of a strange place. Most of the time in addressing this passage, you begin in verse 41, but we started back in verse 36 just to, just, just to get a, a bit of what Peter is involved in as the narrative of Acts 2 unfolds. There's a rhythm in the early part of the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. Jesus goes up. The Spirit of God comes down in Acts chapter 2. And then the latter part of Acts 2, the people of God go out. And then for the remainder of the book of Acts, the lost come in. This is to be the rhythm of the church. The ascension of Christ ensures for us the fall of the Spirit of God on the people of God so that the people of God are empowered, equipped to go forth with the good news of the gospel, that the lost of the world might come in to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the rhythm of the church. Here in Acts 2, Peter is, is preaching. In my mind's eye, all of the disciples are scattered across the, Pente the Pentecost multitude, and they're all preaching, but it's Peter's message that we hear loudest in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches, and with specificity, he says to those gathered there, you have killed the Son of God. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and he has made him both Lord and Christ. And before Peter ever gets to the invitation, the crowd responds. They break into the sermon, and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what must we do? In other words, like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, what must we do to be saved? Given that God has sent salvation into the world and we killed him, now that God has raised him from the dead and given him a position of authority over all creation, what in the world are we to do for ourselves? And Peter gives them the promise of the gospel. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of, of your sin. The promise of the gospel is for you and your children, to those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The church is being born under, under the circumstances of evangelism. The church is born forth from the gospel proclamation of Peter and the other apostles. The church is born that way. The church advances that way. At the forefront of what the church does is the business of evangelism. What, what we do as believers we share the gospel. People talk about being a follower of Christ, followers who, who do share the gospel and followers who don't. The, the New Testament simply has no category for a follower of Jesus who does not share the gospel. We've got, we've got more techniques, we've got more methods, we've got more models, we've got more tools and helps for sharing the gospel than we've ever had before. And yet we are lagging in the area of evangelism in the church more so, I think, than at least in recent history. Our responsibility is to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that we have occasion to share with across the street and around the world. That's what we, that's what we do. Now, I have a theory here that it's really not about our tools, our, our methods. 
I, I happen to know the best method for evangelism, the best model, it's the one that you'll do. That's always the best model for evangelism, the one you will do. That's it. But I, I really think it's not about not knowing, not being well-informed. It's really about where our heart is. If you love Jesus with a white, hot heart, you will not be able to keep back from speaking of what Christ has done in your life. The first function of the church is evangelism. It's the second thing here in the text. Beginning in verse 41, there's this description of 3,000 people coming to faith, being baptized, and, and being incorporated into the life of the church. And then in verse 42, the Bible says, they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The second function you see there in verse 42 is the idea of discipleship. At least that's what most sermons and most Sunday school literature would say about verse 42. I have a little bit of an issue with that. We'd say this is the, the function of the church. It is discipleship because here they're gathered into small groups and they've given themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They've given themselves over to the doctrine of the apostles. They're gathered and they're discussing the tenets of the faith. And that's what we often call discipleship. My problem with that is that it's, it's not really discipleship. It's certainly a part of discipleship, but, but it's not discipleship entirely. D discipleship is, is more than gathering in our holy huddles and learning things about Jesus or discovering things about the Bible. Discipleship is to implement the things that we have learned about Christ, about the gospel from the scripture in our everyday life. Like this, it's the active practice of, of what we have come to know in the gospel. I have a little bit of a hang-up with the idea of separating evangelism and discipleship as disciplines or as functions here. They operate together. If, if you are sharing the gospel with someone and actively involving yourself in their life, making a disciple of them, helping them to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced that until they're actively involved in sharing their faith, that the process of discipleship is still very much incomplete for them. The times in my life when I have been growing the most, when the Spirit is pressing on weak places in my life, is when I'm actively involved in sharing the gospel. There's a harmony here. These functions are working together. Nevertheless, they are meeting together to be instructed from the Word. They're giving themselves over to the apostles' doctrine. There's a third function here. There, there is evangelism, there's discipleship, and then clearly in verse 42 there is fellowship. They met together to give themselves over to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. I, I think for my generation and younger, the idea of the church being a place of refuge, a place of community, is as important as it has ever been before. People tend to be so disconnected in spite of all the various ways we have to be connected one to another. There, there's a, re, a very real sense, a feeling of isolation for so many people. People just need a place to get connected, a place to plug in. One of my favorite examples of how this works is from Genesis 11 and 12. In Genesis 11, they build the Tower of Babel. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. The tower represents security for them. Making a name for themselves represents an identity. And if they have a name and, a, and security, then they're able to gather as a community. And God tears it all down and divides the languages and scatters humanity. And then in chapter 12, this interesting thing happens. We're introduced to Abram from Ur. A Abram is to be the heir to his father's family and all of his possessions. And then God speaks to him. 
And, and he says, come away from your father's home and from your family. In other words, I want you to forego the identity that, that you've felt yourself destined to inherit. And, and I want you to leave all of this behind. Give away all of the security that those possessions would provide for you. And I want you to go to a new place. And in spite of the fact that things won't unfold the way you might think they would, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to give you a new community. See, see, God is meeting the basic needs of Abram, promising him that if he'll come away from a worldly identity, a worldly sense of security, a worldly concept of community, I'll give it to you again in the midst of the people of God. I want you to know that's how the church works today. That God has given us, through Jesus Christ, a new name. That's what the business of a new name is about in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a new sense of security. Not because there's a strong tower in the front yard, but because God is Lord over your life. His providential hand of protection is on you. And I'm going to give you a new community. A people with the law of God written on their heart. A place of refuge and accountability and encouragement. The business of fellowship is critically important. There's a fourth thing here. In verses 44 and 45, something incredible happens. The Bible says in verse 44, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Now, I have been aware of capital campaigns throughout my years of ministry. You have too, where the church would raise funds for various things. And often, uh, Preachers, staff people, the church itself would be very brash in its solicitation of funds from the congregation. There'd be all kinds of tricks rolled out and various presentations to compel the church to give or to convince of the goodness of this particular uh, gift or project. But I have never heard a pastor so brazen as to ask of his congregants that they would go home and sell their things to meet the goals of this particular capital campaign. But that's exactly what the church in Acts 2 does. They freely, willfully sell their stuff to meet the needs of their brothers and the challenges of those around them. It really is a remarkable thing. This is so much a part of the early church experience that by the time you get to Acts 6, there, there's a special group of men who were set aside to make sure that all of the needs of the widows, the disadvantaged, are being met within the church. Stewardship is a major function of the church. We see it in operation here in Acts chapter 2. Fifth and lastly, with regards to functions of a healthy church. In verse 46, the Bible says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. They broke bread from house to house, ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. There's a lot happening in those two verses, but when it comes to functions for the church, what's happening primarily there is worship. The church is gathering for worship. And in reality, all of these other functions flow out of a heart of worship. If you're not doing evangelism worshipfully, discipleship worshipfully, uh, if you're not doing stewardship worshipfully, th then the Bible says in the day of judgment it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it, it burns up. It doesn't matter. Everything that we do, we are to do for the glory of God. These are the functions of the church. This is what we do. Now, there are other things, but they mostly come under one of these categorical headings. This is what we are about as the church. But I want you to know that you can do those five things and still not be a healthy church. I could cite you examples of churches 
who do these specific things, but they're not a healthy church because they're going about it in all the wrong way. We, we might say that the functions of the church are what we do. We might say that the foundations of the church, point number next, are how we go about it, the spirit in which we do it. Now, we've sort of looked superficially at the passage, but there are some deeper underlying things here that need to be present for us to be all that I believe we can be in Christ. First of all, there seems to be a clear understanding of the purpose of the church. They're, they're, they're doing what they're doing because they understand what they've been put there to do. They're compelled to do what we observe them doing in these verses because they have been directly instructed by Jesus to go and make disciples fulfill the Great Commission. They understand their purpose. One of the things that I have found to be encouraging about Longview Point is, is this constant echoing the purpose, the vision, the mission of the church, expanding his kingdom across the street and around the world. You need to guard yourself against becoming desensitized to that. That has to be more than just a mantra for Longview Point. That has to be the whoop and the wharf of all that we do as a church. It has to be who we are. The purpose of the church is the expansion of his kingdom, the advancement of the kingdom across the street and around the world. In about year two for me and my former pastorate, I sort of began to get this sense that, that there was a disconnect at understanding the purpose of the church. And, and we sort of implemented our own mission or vision or purpose statement. Various churches call it various things. And, and we said, we, we exist to advance the kingdom. We would recite this, repeat this back and forth in the congregation until this was sort of beaten into our brains and our hearts. And it was a part of everything that we do. We exist to advance the kingdom to strengthen the church, and to glorify the Lord. Essentially, at least in spirit, the same as the vision statement that you've been operating with here for 16 years. I wanted to communicate, and I I want you to know that our very existence is bound up in the work of advancing His kingdom. It's more than something we do. It is who we are. Listen, if if church, if these functions, if if being a part of evangelistic efforts, if that's just something that you do and not the center of your life, you will eventually grow weary in well-doing. It works this way in ministry. Sometimes ministry can be very demanding. It can be crazy, and there's work all hours of the night, and there's responsibilities and obligations. You find yourself running in a thousand different directions. And if that ever becomes in your mind a job, that kind of responsibility that interferes with your life rather than being something that's very much a part of your life, something that you delight in, something that you take pleasure in, it will very quickly kill you. You'll find yourself dead and drying on the vine. Our purpose, our purpose is to expand his kingdom across the street and around the world. This is not just something we do. This is who we are. The gospel defines our purpose. Uh, Foundation number two. Not, Not only do we see that there is a good understanding or sense of purpose here in the early church, but there's there's unity as well. They're not just meeting every now and then. They're not just gathering casually The church is meeting together every day, enjoying food together, worshiping God together. This is a daily thing. They're not meeting under the constraints of some religious requirement. 
They're meeting together because they delight in one another's company. There is a unity about the church that's observed here in Acts 2. In Ephesians 4, when Paul describes the gifting of the church, the various gifts that we enjoy, and even the diversity of the body of Christ, he says that the the circumstances under which the church is most effective are, are, are when the church is working together in unison. When all of the gifts and abilities of the body of Christ have been knit nicely together and are in full operation, it's under those circumstances that the church is most effective, enjoys the greatest power when the kingdom is advancing. If you've ever been in a church that experienced discord, you know how it changes the atmosphere, how the tension can be thick, how everything is different. If, if you want to enjoy health and, and power as a congregation, there must be a, a unity about the church. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that there must be uniformity about the church. There's a, there's a place where you can go to find uniformity in the congregation. They're called cults, but you won't find uniformity in Baptist churches. There's almost nothing else that could, there is nothing else that could have called this group of people together apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. For heaven's sakes, there are Mississippi State and Ole Miss fans in the same gathering this morning, all together because of the gospel. It it really is a strange thing. It's fascinating to me, and and I do think that in many ways sports is sort of a religion in the South, how, how, how it stands to call us together. Let me show you how this whole idea of purpose and unity work together. This is, this is all one and the same. We're, we're sports fans. I've got boys, and I'm a red-blooded American man, so we love football. You know how that is. And, and, uh, and so we go from time to time. And, and, you, and you just, I catch myself looking around and a little envious that the church doesn't have a little more of this sometimes. There's 60,000 people. There's rich people, and there's poor people. There's people from every ethnic background known to man, people from every trade or vocational background. There's, there's drunk people and sober people. Worse than that, I'm sure. And, and, and for just this moment in time, everyone is pulling in the same. They all want the same thing for a single moment. They're unified. When you've got a good sense of purpose, you won't struggle to have unity in the church in spite of the diversity that exists within the church, even diversity with regards to secondary and tertiary theological issues, uh, diversity with regards to methodological ideas. There's a place for us all focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity does not mean uniformity. Let me tell you what else it doesn't mean. Unity does not always mean tranquility in the church. That doesn't mean that the waters will always be still in the church. How many of you, show of hands, have brothers and sisters? Brothers or sisters. Most all of you. How many of you, show of hands, have ever wanted to take your hands and put them around said brother and sister's neck and just squeeze real tight? Yeah. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. It doesn't mean that they're no longer your brother or your sister. It just means that you're family. And sometimes families have disagreements. Let me tell you something. One day, perhaps in the not-so-distant future, you will think, Brother Wade did not do that the way he should have done that. And one day, perhaps in the not-so-distant future, I will observe of some of you and think they did not do that the way they should have done that. You know how I know that? Because we love the church. And when you love the church, you have ideas, 
convictions, you're passionate about the church, and you have ideas about how things should be done. That's just the nature of being a part of the same family. Now, when it happens, when it happens, you need to, you need to find the maturity and the gospel grace to be able to press beyond that. But at the same time, you don't need to despair and say, oh, no, unity is gone, because unity is not about tranquility. It's about togetherness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're going to have a good foundation, you've got to have purpose, you've got to have unity. Thirdly, you've got to have commitment. Now, I'm not talking exclusively here about commitment to the institution or the church building. Although, at times, our devotion to Jesus should demonstrate itself by our commitment to the church and to various programs and efforts within the church in so much as those programs and efforts serve the overall goal and purpose of the church, which is to expand his kingdom across the street and around the world. So I'm not not talking exclusively about that, but to the body of Christ, there has to be commitment. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from the idea that they're selling their stuff for the good of, of the church, to serve the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to call that a degree of commitment that is seldom matched in the 21st century church. I don't know us. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody in my ministry life who's selling their stuff to meet ministry needs. I, 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 it, it would be astonishing to me to meet someone in the lobby this morning who was headed home to sell their sports car to meet the Annie Armstrong Easter offering goal. I'm not saying you got to. I'm just putting an idea out there. It's just not the kind of thing that we do. But there's depth of commitment there, isn't there? And we're, we're sort of the opposite. Like, I'm not terribly legalistic about things that call for people to miss a church service and those kinds of things. But I, I am troubled at how often I hear people explain to me that they're going to miss a church service or some kind of ministry engagement opportunity for something else. And how seldom I hear people saying to me how they're going to miss their sporting event or their extracurricular activity because a church service interferes with that. Like that's where I'm that's where I'm troubled. I'm not like checking boxes here, trying to be like legalist. I'm just I'm just telling you, I'm not sure there's the degree of commitment in the church that there needs to be today. My my joke at Matheson for the past several years has been if if I had a something that was top secret, I didn't want anybody to know. I'd put it in the bulletin, be on the PowerPoint. We'd put it on the website, be on the sign out front in front of the church. And, and without, without exception, someone would come to me when the event passed, and they'd say, y'all don't tell us nothing. We don't know anything going on around here. <laughs> and and the, same, the same people who are so disconnected, so unaware, could, could tell you everything about their favorite hobby or their, their interest. You know, when it, when it rains... Baptists are bad to melt. I don't know if y'all know about that or not. And I, I told them in the early service, if I wake up on Sunday, if I roll over on Sunday morning and hear a clap of thunder, it's like a dagger to my heart. You know, ain't, ain't nobody coming to church. No, ain't nobody coming to church in the rain. And the same people, this, listen, the same people. It's five degrees. The wind's blowing 40 miles an hour and it's pouring down rain. And they're outside playing ball, deer hunting, fishing, you name it, they're out there. And it, it's, it's not about ability. It's about commitment. And I know all of these things can be manipulated in ways that are wrong-headed and, and very religious in nature. I got all that. But the fact of the matter is, we've got a real commitment problem in the church of Jesus Christ today. And I'm just telling you, 
If Jesus has bled and died for the salvation of our soul, how dare could we give him less with regards to commitment than we give the hobbies and interests within our own personal lives? It's just crazy to me. It doesn't add up. There's something nonsensical about the whole notion of, of going about things that way. If we're going to be what God intends for us to be, we're going to have to know who we are, what we've been placed here to do. We're going to have to be pulling in the same direction with a sense of unity, and we're going to have to be deeply committed to the cause, which is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I, I struggled through my building metaphor in the early service here. That it, you find it often in the Bible. Jesus is himself the chief cornerstone. He talks in, in the Sermon on the Mount about the man who builds on the rock and the wind and wave come and they crash against the house. But that house stands because it's, it's built on the right ground. We've talked about functions and we've talked about foundations here, but there's something that goes even deeper than the foundation. You, you have to find a good place to put down a good foundation. And the good place to put down a good foundation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before you get to anything else, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Matthew 16, Jesus is with the disciples and he gets to Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar and Philip. And he looks around and he seems to be saying there, boys, it's clear what they think about Caesar and what they think about Philip, but what do they say about me? Peter said, some say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. And then Jesus gets more personal and says, but who do you say that I, the son of man, am? And in a rare moment of brilliance for Peter, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And upon you, Peter, by implication upon your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the gospel. At the ground level, it's the gospel. It's the gospel that gives us purpose. It's the gospel that unites us. It's the gospel that motivates us in our commitment to all things Christ. It's the gospel. Occasionally, I'll run into folks, this is, I think, a big issue in the Bible Belt, who, who think that being a member of the church, being a part of the church, is a right that they're born with. And I want you to know that being a member of the body of Christ is not a right. It's a privilege that was bought at great price. At the price of God's Son's innocent blood, Jesus died for our sin that we might have access to the church. I shared a little bit on the Saturday night and some, I think, on the Sunday morning that I was with you in view of a call of our family experience, my family experience, and Brandy's as well, and how for us, when we were born again, the church became our family. I don't know how to press that enough for you to really feel how, how, how deep that is for us, but I, I, want, I want you to know that I love the church, that, that the, the church is my family. Like when we call a sitter for our kids, we don't call family. We call them y'all, so get ready. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a fact. When the holidays come and, and, and we're, we're looking for people to celebrate the birth of the Savior with, we're, we're, we're not looking for dysfunction central with our families. We're, we're, we're looking forward to meeting with the church. I love the church. And, and, you know, Jesus could have used a gazillion words to describe us, but he chose to call us his bride. It really is a phenomenal thing to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know there's people in this congregation, you've been hurt by church folks, and you've been hurt by churches, and you've seen stuff happen at church that's ungodly and it's not right, shouldn't have ever happened. I got all that. But I'm telling you, folks, in spite of our warts and our scars, our bumps and our bruises, the fact that we can get wonky and crazy sometimes, the church of Jesus Christ is still the best thing going. 